Hi, and welcome to the Trail to Austin, a place to get to know the people of Austin and how they became the people of Austin. I'm your host, Bob Morse, and joining me via Zoom is my co-host, Joel McColl. Hello. How's hey, the Zoom is something else. Yeah. It's, I mean, well, it's kind of fun to... And, it's a new way of doing things, and it makes it, frankly, much easier on me not having to haul the equipment around all the time. <laughs> that. Well, I think it's probably going to have a long-lasting effect long after the pandemic uh, stay at home is over. Yeah. So joining us today, we have an, another local musician that um, Joel's friends with. He's played at the deli a few times. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen him before, but if you haven't, get to know him. His name is Terry Klein. Hi, Terry. It's great. It's, hi, it's great to be here with you. Thanks. We're glad you're here. I mean, uh, you know, to us, this is um, this is the way we kind of get to know different things about people and, and what their background is and stuff like that. And uh, so uh, starting off, you're, you play, is it more of a country style? Um, I think that it is, folk people would say that I play country music, and country people would say that I play folk music. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, but uh, my first love and what really brought me to songwriting was music of Hank Williams. And that's as country as it gets. Right. Um, and so when you... When you listen to my stuff, you know I'm not sure how how much his fingerprints are are all over it, or whether it's been put through the filter of other people admire, like Bob Dylan and John Prine and Mary Gaucher. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, my godfather is a is a reporter and. Uh, and was on the McNeil Lair News Hour for a number of years. Um, his name is Paul Solman, and he went to see me in Boston when I was on tour there just about a year ago. He watched the show, he enjoyed it, and afterwards he said to me, I have figured out what kind of music you play. And I said, what kind of music do I play, Paul? He said, you play country and eastern music. <laughs> <laughs> That's Never heard that before. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when I was checking out your bio page, just to make sure I knew a little bit about you, you know, and, and what you do, um, I came across that one of your influences was John Prine. I just, I know we just recently lost him. So, you know, I know that that's got to be kind of strange for you because this was somebody that you specifically listed on your page as somebody that influenced you. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I love John Prine's music. I, um, I, I love how accessible it is. And, uh, I never got to meet him. Uh, but by all descriptions of him, he was just an extraordinarily sweet person. Um, so, uh, so it, 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 it is a, a pretty huge loss. I spent most of Thursday and Friday just listening to John Prine songs um, over and over and, and just trying to figure out 
what exactly it is I love about them. And I think those things that I talked about, just how accessible it is. But the other incredible thing to me about him is I have trouble identifying who his influences were Mm -hmm. because there wasn't anything like him before. Like there was Dylan, but Dylan was very poetic and, and shortly after he, 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 he was, he was poetic. He became very abstract. Um, and, you know, and so it, it's just really super interesting to me. You know, there was nothing like Sam Stone um, out there um, or Spanish Pipe Dream. You know, Spanish Pipe Dream, maybe a little bit of Christopherson, you could, you could say, was, was kind of like that. But, um, but Sam Stone and Hello in there and Angel from Montgomery, it's so interesting to think about it because in the years since, so many of us um, who call ourselves songwriters have been so deeply influenced by that that it feels very normal. But I just can't imagine in 1972 what it must have felt like to have this person saying, I am an old woman, who's a, who is obviously not an old woman, <laughs> and have it be utterly, completely, perfectly believable and incredible. Um, so yeah, it's a huge loss. It's a huge, huge loss. We're fortunate to have a very large body of work, though, that we, that we can enjoy and study. So I think one of the best uh, descriptions I heard of, of him, and, and like you, Terry, I'm a huge John Prine fan, well, er, strong, strong early influence, is he has the, had the ability to take a complex human emotion and make it simple. And just, just, <laughs> just encapsulate it, and you just he he gets across this this huge experience in the space of five words. Yeah, simple terms. Yeah, you know. And speaking of influences, I thought about that as well. And uh, do you are you familiar with Richard Brodigan? I'm not. Uh, he was a poet in the late 60s, early 70s, kind of a, well, a hippie, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the same sort of approach to the human condition. Hmm. So you might, you might want to look at that, but yeah, like you, before John Prine, there was nothing like it. Right. I mean, I have to assume that he was, was drawing influences. Uh, influence from people from from uh, fiction writers um, mm-hmm. who wrote about um, the human condition at that kind of granular level, and specifically, I'm thinking about people like Carson McCullers, um, who wrote "The Heart Is a Lonely Hunter." Um, I'm really focused, actually thinking only about her. Um, I think that uh, that writers like that who who found normal people doing normal things and you know larry mcmurtry is another one um his his early work you know the the talia trilogy and and that kind of thing normal people doing normal things that um has a is so normal and so specific that it becomes very universal somehow and that's extraordinary yeah that's what i shoot for in my writing so the, well, you do a good job. Oh, thank you. 
So, Terry, where well, did you grow up? Well, I lived in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, until I was 11 years old. When I was 11, we moved to Los Angeles, California, and I lived there until I was 19. Um, so uh, I grew up mostly in those two places. My dad, uh, throughout those years, lived in New York City. Um, and uh, and toward the end, he, he and he still does live in Westchester County, just north of New York. So I spent a lot of time in that part of the world as well. So did they were they responsible for giving you some of your musical taste? I think so. I think my dad uh, has been for he forever before I started to really got me to he tried to impress upon me the brilliance of singer songwriters, certain singer songwriters definitely. Like I just remember him talking up and down about somebody like Greg Brown. Who I had, who I had not heard of before, who's an incredible songwriter from Iowa. Um, and, uh, like I, you know, when I was, when I was 30, I hadn't heard of Greg Brown. And, and I still, it took me a while, even after he talked to me about Greg Brown to, to discover him. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's music in my family going way, way back. My great, Great grandfather uh, was a fiddler in Russia and and played in the Tsar's court supposedly and was mm. saved from the pogroms as a result. Um, and uh, his son Frank Warshower uh, was a uh, a drummer in vaudeville bands um, and a very accomplished songwriter himself. Um, uh, he wrote a, a song that was the number four song in the country in 1952 called It Isn't Fair. Um, but what he is, what he, the song that he, he wrote and that he, credit was, was taken from him. Um, uh, and it, this is all kind of part of family lore is a song called Dinah. Um, uh, which, um, if you if you go out, out to see an old time band at any point, they'll probably play that song. But so he, 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 there was a dispute about it. There was a settlement. Um, and, uh, but he's, his name is not on it. Um, so there was that. And, uh, and then my dad, uh, is a, is a writer and was a, a reporter and a journalist. And the first book that he wrote came out in 1981. It was a biography of Woody Guthrie. Um, so, when I was, you know, from the age I was from four or five until, you know, I was eight or nine, I feel like that's pretty much all I heard was when I was with him was, was Woody Guthrie. Um, and I appreciated it a lot. Um, but, uh, but then I just went out and, and started liking my own kind of music as, as, as we tend to do. Yeah. So what was, um, how long have you been here in Austin? We moved here in July of 2016. Oh, okay. And what brought you here? Just uh, the music business. <laughs> wow, good. No, that's. I mean, we've talked to a lot of the musicians on here, and you know, they they talk about the way this uh, this community supports the musicians, and even to having an organization like Ham or something like that. You know, that really can make a difference for somebody. 
Yeah. Um, I, before we lived here, I was I had spent 15 years um, in in Boston practicing law. Uh, I was a trial lawyer there, and uh, and there is not. Well, Boston has a very vibrant music community. It does not have anything approaching the vibrancy of Austin, especially in the genre that I place myself. Yeah, no, you seem like a natural fit. I mean, the type of music you do. Yeah. So speaking of that, uh, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about was obviously under these new conditions that it's challenging to perform to an audience. So what are being, what have been some of the ways you've been coping with it? Well, it is hard and, uh, it, it is, it is incredibly hard. And I've had, um, I was going to at the end of this month do a, a pretty important and significant tour up through the upper Midwest and down. Uh, Memphis, Chicago, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, and, and then home. Um, and, uh, and that just is gone. That's, that's not happening. Yeah. And that, that would have been, um, that would have been a good tour for me financially. I've, I'm fortunate that I've figured out a way to be able to tour and actually make money, which is, definitely the exception <laughs> and not the rule in this business but so it's very difficult if not impossible to make up for that um what i do though is every wednesday at one o'clock central i stream for an hour from my backyard um i just set up the oh, ipad cool. um I set up the iPad. I set up a USB mic so that it sounds good, and uh, and I just play songs and 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 talk at people for an hour, and uh, and that has been a great way to stay connected with people. Um, and uh, I was surprised by by the extent to which I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I sent a an email to. I was texting back and forth with Adam Dawson, who helps me with all kinds of, of publicity and, and management and booking and all this kind of stuff. And he had suggested that I do it. And the morning of the first Wednesday, I did it a few weeks ago. I said, do you really think I should do this? And he said, yeah, I really, I really think you should. And, uh, and I did it. And, and I just found it to be extremely energizing for me. Um, not just in the moment, but the cool thing about streaming on Facebook is, is you can kind of re, you can relive it almost because you, you play and you sing and, and you can engage with people a little bit, but then afterwards you can go through and read through the comments oh, nice. and, yeah. and hear about what people, what real, what songs really move people. Um, and that is, that, that isn't, you know, it makes me feel connected to people in a way that otherwise I wouldn't feel connected. So do you um, read the comments while you play? Uh, sometimes I will scroll through and just take a quick look, but for some, for whatever reason, that doesn't pick up everything. And, and so you, you know, I go through after and look uh, through and look through the comments 
to see what I missed. I was talking to David Hamburger, and he says he has to fight the urge to look at the comments because it's like uh, if you're playing a gig and you can see the little thought bubbles above their heads while you're playing. It's, that's a really great analogy. It's absolutely right, and it is incredibly yeah. di- distracting. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, but in the be- kind of a, in, in a way that I, that that you have to get used to, just like you have to get used to any kind of distraction when you're performing anywhere. Um, but I love it. I love seeing comments pop up when I'm playing. I try not to read them so that I can stay focused, but it means that people are engaged. Have you found that your reach has expanded? You uh, are catching people from areas that you've never been to. Mm. Or maybe that you've been to, but people that you hadn't met before. A couple here and there, definitely. I think that's absolutely happened. Um, I got a really sweet comment from somebody in the Netherlands, which, as you know, Joel, is is a place where I've gone to play live before and and where I have some fans. Um, But somebody new, maybe a friend of mine over there, shared it while I was doing it. Um, and somebody new found me, and, and and that was that was really great. Part of the reason I do it in the afternoon is to pick up some of the folks in in that Europe, uh, in in the UK, and and, and on the continent, um, because they have really kind of helped make all of this sustainable for me. Excellent. Yeah, I think after going to be a lot of references to after the pandemic, but I mm-hmm. think uh, that there's going to be an increased use of, of uh, online performances for this very reason. It kind of does away with borders. I think that's right. And uh, it does away with borders. But the other thing about it is that um, uh, once you find your sweet spot, uh, you can make a little bit of money doing it. And the overhead, you don't have to spend gas money. You don't have to deal with staying in the hotels and, and that kind of thing. It won't be a lot because it isn't a lot right now. Um, it won't make up for the touring that we all have to do um, to have it be sustainable. But I think this is that might end up being a net positive from all of this. Though, I mean, Joel, you talk about after the pandemic, I just, you know, we're starting to see things get canceled in the fall. Well, yeah, I didn't say when after the pandemic is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, was... I just, it's so, I, I, it's, it's difficult to conceive of, of when and how this well, is all going to, going to be, there is going to be an after, you know? Well, we, I don't think there will be a return to normal. Yeah. No, I was normal would take a whole new definition. I was thinking Uh, when you were talking that, um, you know, if this does stretch into the fall, you may have to rethink that uh, Wednesday at one or whatever in the backyard. (laughs) May have to go to evening show. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In the summer, it will be. It will probably have to be a broadcast from indoor. Yeah, I noticed we're all rocking that pandemic beard too, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah. I bet razor blade sales have dropped dramatically. I bet you're right. Yeah, what really ticks me off is I bought an eight-pack of blades just before this whole thing hit. I'm probably good for the rest of my life. Yeah. (laughs) So you said you had found a a way to make a little money off of this. Is there anything through Facebook? Because I know several people have asked, you know, how can you make money on Facebook? Well, um, so when you go to create your live stream, there's an opportunity before you press go live to include a caption. And in that caption, I put a link to uh, my PayPal account and a link to my Venmo, my Venmo account. And so that is, you know, at the top of the page. Um, What's cool though, is that um, throughout other people will also um, drop those links into the comments just to be nice. Nice. Um, and, um, and that, you know, I mean, and, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that, that helps, that helps a lot. Well, I know that, um, you know, Joel and I talked about that before this all started about how, you know, that ways to digitally have a footprint and still make money off of it. Yeah. I think everybody kind of got forced into that mode all of a sudden now. So. Yeah. So, Bob, let's play one of Terry's songs. Terry, okay. what should we play? Oh, goodness. Um, uh, why don't you pick one, Joel? <laughs> uh, I think Sagamore Bridge. Okay, that's the one. All right. And we'll take a short break to do that, and we'll be right back. All right, cool. Well, they took out the circle, but the traffic's no better. Sixty million dollars just pissed away. You sit for an hour, the baby fills her diaper. That huggy ain't leaking, so I guess we're okay. And at Freddy's in Brewster, roast beef and salami, sliced to perfection. That IBP meat. Folks standing there waiting, and tunics and tevas. Little hungover, maybe one third asleep. On a thin strip of sand out in the Atlantic, you can sin like the Kennedys did. Provincetown salt boxes shimmer in sunlight. There's a suicide fence on the Sagamore Bridge. There's a suicide fence on the Sagamore Bridge. Yeah, that bar band and wealthy, they do hits from the 90s at the Beachcomber Pub on Saturday night. It's like an ad for Viagra. They play Bush and Nirvana. Get on the bar flies. Get lucky sometimes. And the rich folks from Chatham, well, they don't like poor folks. Say affordable housing, it won't happen here. And in their black E350, 
When they've had four too many, they speed on the back roads and T-bone the deer. On a thin strip of sand out in the Atlantic, you can sin like the Kennedys did. Provincetown salt boxes shimmering sun. There's a suicide fence on the Sagamore Bridge. There's a suicide fence on the Sagamore Bridge. Yeah, the girls in from Russia live in single wide trailers in Yarmouth and Dennis on summer J1. They make four bucks an hour serving crab cakes at parties till the advance. Husbands and sons And on Labor Day weekend Locals stand on the bridge Waving goodbye At the folks on Route 6 They head back to their house Feeling smug satisfaction Mix Coke and Evan Williams Scream at their kids On a thin strip of sand Out in the Atlantic You can sin like the Kennedys did Provincetown salt boxes shimmering sunlight. There's a suicide fence on the Sagamore Bridge. There's a suicide fence on the Sagamore Bridge. There's a suicide fence on the Sagamore Bridge. So that was our guest today, Terry Klein, performing his song, is it Sagmore Bridge? Sagamore. Sagamore. I've always wanted to ask you, Terry, because I, I, I love that song of yours, and I've played it with you, or I've sat next to you while you've played it. And uh, tell me the story behind that. Well, I mean, there are two pieces to the story. Um there's the living it part of it, which that song is, is about Cape Cod, Massachusetts and the various experiences that I had on Cape Cod, which is a, a vacation destination over the years. Uh, well, we lived up there, various things I saw and observed and, and, and that kind of thing. So there's all those observations, but how does a song like that get written? I had a doctor's appointment just about two years ago, three years ago. And, uh, and at that point, the primary way that I wrote songs was I would walk along the, the Shoal Creek Greenbelt Trail in central Austin and I would just kind of throw ideas out and talk into my phone and, and record little snippets of melodies and that kind of thing. And after that doctor's appointment, it was, uh, it was, you know, early, it was, it was mid morning, I'd say, and I was walking along Shoal Creek and, um, and lyrics just started hitting me, uh, verses started hitting me, um, 
in different orders and different configurations. And it was all these images of, of Cape Cod that, that just kind of kept rolling along. What I felt like is they were, because it's a, va- a vacation destination, I think a lot of vacation destinations we have these idealized perspectives on them. When in reality, there's this huge uh, sort of unrecognized workforce and uh and and population that, that supports this idyllic place and makes it idyllic for for other people more so than it makes it idyllic for themselves and so that was kind of the the that was what i was what i was thinking about and reaching for um and and i had no notion that anybody would ever have any interest whatsoever in that song. Just no, no, I had no inkling that anybody, I, I didn't even know if I'd ever play it for anybody. Uh-huh. But I have, um, you know, I have friends and who we get together or got together back in the, when we could and we play new songs for each other. Um, and I played that song for a, a group of folks. I'm not sure where I was exactly. And, uh, and it made a, a really significant impression upon them. I started playing it live and it started making a really significant impression upon audiences. And, um, and, and so it, the song has kind of taken on a life of its own for reasons that I still don't entirely understand. Well, I can tell you, it's a very literary song. It, it reads like a novel. Right. Well, and people say, how I would describe your song, right? Well, thanks. You know, people say that sounds a lot like McMurtry and, you know, sounds more like Larry <laughs> <laughs> than James to me, you know? Interesting. Have you guys yeah. played together before? Oh, we once or twice. Several times. <laughs> okay. So one of the lines is, you can sin like the Kennedys did. You told me a story one time about your connection with the Kennedys. Yeah. Um, it's a, a, a very real connection. Uh, my father in the mid 1970s was first the deputy bureau chief of Rolling Stone magazine in Washington DC he was the deputy to at that point Dick Goodwin um who was the character that Quiz Show the movie Quiz Show was yeah. based on his story and he was married to Doris Kearns Goodwin uh before he passed away so so he was the deputy to, to Dick Goodwin and then the bureau chief uh, of, of Rolling Stone. And before he was, I think everything happened real quick. And, and before he was able to find an apartment down there, um, the folks at Rolling Stone, and I think Dick Goodwin in particular, um, was able to, to find a place for him to live temporarily. And it was Hickory Hill which was Robert F. Kennedy's house 
um, in Arlington, Virginia. Um, and, and so that was where I spent my first birthday, um, was, was at Hickory Hill in, in, in Virginia and, uh, um, slept in the, the Kennedy family crib and, uh, uh, so yeah, there there's definitely a, a little a little connection there. That's awesome. Yeah, not many people can <laughs> say that one. Slept in a candy crib. Yeah. So um, one of the things we like to ask our guest, and as much as is you know, there's all this weirdness going on. I want to try to keep some level of normalcy. Um, so, what were your first impressions when you moved to Austin? Oh, um, we just loved it here so much. We moved here from Boston because we, we loved it. Uh, we visited a, a number of times and, um, the live oak trees, um, and there is this weird persistent energy when you go out and it doesn't matter what night you go out. If you go to like Jenny's Little Longhorn or the White Horse or the Continental Club on a Tuesday night, everybody just kind of feels like they're on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and we just loved that aspect of of of, of this place. Um, we moved here in the summer, which is always which when we tell people that they chuckle. Yeah, especially where bad. you came from. <laughs> right. It wasn't that bad actually because my wife was on a sabbatical and um and you know, when you play music you, you do it at night. And so during the days we just scattered out every swimming hole and swimming pool we could find and 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 spent a lot of time at Kenny Falls and Barton Springs and Deep Eddy and so that was our initial impression of, of of, of Austin. It was, it was, you know, those kinds of idyllic, wonderful, pleasant places to spend time. Yeah. So what are, what are some of your current favorite places to hang out and do things when you're not confined to your house? Right. Um, well, um, we live in, in Allendale, um, and I just love walking around the neighborhood, which is something we still get to do. You know, there are live oaks everywhere and it's just beautiful and walkable. Um, but, uh, but other than that, you know, when this, when this is over, I obviously go out and I see a lot of music at places like New World Deli, um, where I have a monthly residency and where my friends are constantly playing. Um, so, so New World Deli is, is, is a favorite of mine. I love the Continental Club. I love the gallery at the Continental Club. Um, and uh, and so, so there's all the, the musical venues. I'm a huge fan of book people. We're very fortunate to have, have a bookstore like book people. Um, and, uh, and I love getting out to the hill country too when, when we can. Um, I'm lucky to to get to go out and play at Lukenbach once a year. Um, and that's always a wonderful, wonderful trip. Having that um, really beautiful country so close is is something that we very much appreciate. 
Cool. No, that's that is a nice area. I like that drive, especially if you take the back roads out there. It's mm-hmm. kind of super cool. Um, so, one of the other questions we've always asked is, "What is the weirdest thing you've seen since you've moved to Austin?" Hmm. So I went to law school in Berkeley. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when you spent, and so I spent years in Berkeley and Berkeley is the weirdest place um, <laughs> I've ever been. The first night that we lived, that, that I lived in Berkeley, I was walking through Sproul Plaza, which is kind of the center of campus. And there was a man screaming obscenities at no one in particular and a dog riding a skateboard. And that felt just, that was Berkeley. Um, Weird things in Austin. Um, I mean, Joel, help me out here. I think that Austin in 2016 was is so much less weird than it was in 1986 or 1979, right? Like, well, I, just, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the urbanization of Austin is in the 2000s. In the 21st century, has been pretty radical. Uh, we still had Leslie. Leslie's weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, based on that, where you that, live, I would think you've seen uh, Bikini Bicycle Man, I think they call him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the, the Thong Man? Yeah, we have seen him. Um, and hey, But after Berkeley, that's not weird, huh? Yeah. After Berkeley, I mean, I felt like that's when I first saw him, I was like, it's just like Berkeley. <laughs> hey, that's the problem. Berkeley resets yeah. your weird meter. Yeah. That's, I think that that has something to do with it. Um, uh, I'll tell you some weird things I've seen is, is how much they charge you to take the toll lane on Mopac. <laughs> um, that's yeah. pretty bizarre. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to think of a, of a true weird Austin moment that I've experienced. And I think a lot of it, because we've been here for so long, it feels very normal to me, like Lala's little nugget. Um, you right. know, the bar, yeah. um, where there's, where there's Christmas decorations year round. Like that would seem weird to me now if I hadn't been there a whole lot of time. Quentin um, Tarantino's favorite place. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, well, one of them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that my weird, my barometer of weirdness has got, was, was, was forever and irreparably altered by living in Berkeley. Uh, understood. So in the four four years you've been here, uh, yeah. there have been some pretty astounding changes in just four years. I think that's right. The skyline is different. Um, you know, there's the that kind of, that Jenga building that went up. Um, so that's quite different. Uh, we lost Threadgills. Um, uh, we lost Hills Cafe. Um, the, you know, the place Joel, before I found you that booked me once a month was Strange Brew. 
um, down on Manshack, and uh, that that was gone within five months or seven months of us getting here. So, um, so it is changing. We're losing venues in a way that is kind of freaky, and I wonder what's going to happen again after the pandemic. You know. Um, I just I wonder who's gonna who's gonna survive out of this. You know who's gonna make it through. I that's, did, that's a good point. I did see it. A local economist said that you know a lot of these businesses that are boarded up right now, you're not gonna see ever reopen their doors, and that was a very mm. depressing thing to to hear. You know, but he he said you know the ones that do make it through obviously will be yeah the Stronger. Yeah, yeah, stronger for it. So last question. Since you came from Boston, this is actually going to be pretty good, I think. Um, what advice would you give somebody who's moving to Austin? Um, or contemplating moving here? Well, the first thing I would say, unlike everybody else who lives here, I would say do it. <laughs> yeah, our number one answer is don't yeah uh do it this is a great place to live an incredibly livable city um uh and so so you know that would be my primary piece of advice i you know and i'd also to the extent that somebody was just moving here I would tell them to try to live as centrally as they can for a little while um, because it's, it's livable and it is so vibrant. We took a walk as a family yesterday in Rosedale uh, right off Burnett where Pine House Pizza is or was and uh, where, you know, there's upper crust and, a, you know, there's just a ton of stuff going on there, and yet it's a beautiful, livable um, neighborhood with reasonably sized homes. And it's very central. You can get downtown really easily. So I would tell somebody, do it and, tr- and live as centrally as you can because it's such a vibrant place. Okay. Well, on that note. Okay. Go ahead. So, Joel. well, <clears throat> you have your weekly uh online concert i do where can people where can people see that these are these are good questions so if you're looking for me on facebook you can find me at facebook.com uh forward slash perry klein music that's p-e-r-r-y-k-l-e-i-n music if you're looking for me just on the normal old world wide web it's perrykleinmusic.com uh, my Twitter and Instagram handles are both Klein Songs, K-L-E-I-N-S-O-N-G-S. And I think that about covers it. Okay. And cool. those concerts are at 1 o'clock, right, Central Time? Those concerts are at 1 o'clock Central Time. That's right. Excellent. So, Joel, do you have any anything you want to plug? Well, I'm actually doing a an online thing with Terry. Uh, this coming Sunday, which will be the 13th. No, no, 19th, 19th. 19th. Thank you. <laughs> uh, 
it's actually a fundraiser for New World Deli. Uh, it was put Excellent. together by Christy Moore. Uh, she's going to do a half hour. I'll do a half hour. Terry will do a half hour. And then uh, Adam Belsky will do a half hour. Uh, right now, I'm going to go out on the limb and say it'll be on the New World Deli Facebook page. Okay. And that's New World Deli, N-E-W-O-R-L-D-E-L-I. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll be at 2 o'clock Central this coming Sunday, the 19th. And then uh, on the tw- 26th, uh, doing an online thing with Jan Sides and Scott Martin. Oh, cool. Uh, location to be determined. Okay. But it'll be some sort of Facebook thing. Right. And by the way, guys, um, anybody who's listening out there, if you're around central Austin or even if you're not, you know, go buy and get a sandwich at the deli. The, they haven't changed, you know, as far as being wonderful sandwiches and go get you some takeout. Give give yourself a break from making a meal. And I have to say, Greg is is a marvelous guy. He has not laid off one person. He's had a couple people leave, Mm. but but he has not laid off one person. Has kept everybody on the payroll, uh, keeping regular hours and delivering food. So we hope to have Greg on again to kind of just touch base to see how he's dealing with the pandemic because it's a pretty interesting story. But Terry, thanks for the time. Yeah. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, to the audience out there, thanks. And we'll see you next time on the trail to Austin.